Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to get our focus on the Word of God this morning and not on whatever happened this last week, whatever's going to happen this afternoon or the football game this evening. For, of course, Jim's not here to pay attention to that, but he'll get it on the tape. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship. Filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, ready to take in the Word. I'm getting a lot of, I'm talking very softly, Bryce. And uh, I think the volume's up too high on the speakers. Popping and let's work on that. Work on that during silent prayer. How do you work on volume in silent prayer? Y'all are just sound asleep this morning. Gee. Okay, I can tell we're going to have some struggles this morning. Now I hardly now I hardly hear the speaker at all. Okay, there there we go. All right, let's bow our heads together and I'll open in prayer in just a minute. Father, again, we come before your throne of grace, mindful of the fact that you have given us a tremendous privilege to be uh, living in this nation where we have such tremendous freedoms that have been uh, guaranteed to us by you and instantiated in our Constitution. And Father, we pray that you would continue to allow us to enjoy these freedoms, that you would protect us both from those within this nation who seek to limit our freedoms and those enemies outside our nation who would seek to destroy us. Father, it is on the basis of these freedoms that we uh, have the freedom to evangelize, the freedom to send out missionaries throughout the world, the freedom to support Israel and to continue that support for their their endeavors and to protect them from the assaults against them that are ultimately energized by Satan and his anti-Semitic campaign. Father, now we gather as believers this morning recognizing that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that it is part of our responsibility as believers to study your word, to implement these principles in our own lives, and to apply them in our thinking in every area of our life. Father, we pray that as we study these things this morning, you would help us to concentrate that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we would clearly understand what is being taught in your word, that we would clearly be able to see how to apply it. We would have the courage and the objectivity to apply these things in our own lives. Now, Father, we just commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, one of the problems that you run into whenever you talk about the subject at hand this morning, which is uh, getting into the area of marriage and divorce, you always run into a certain amount of legalism. Now, one of the characteristics of legalism is that we like to have set rules. We like to know exactly what to do in certain circumstances, that if this situation occurs, we want to know exactly what to do. And often the Word of God does not tell us what to do in every circumstance. It gives us general principles. And under the uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit and based on our own uh, spiritual maturity, we have to apply those general principles to our circumstance. That's part of what the Bible calls wisdom. Now, we live in a time, as every believer has in the church age, when our concepts of marriage and the role of the husband, the role of the wife, are always affected to a certain degree by the cosmic system surrounding us. And we live in an age that's been uh, tremendously impacted by the influence of feminism, radical feminism since the 60s, as well as um, sort of almost an anti-male mentality. And so that's left many men wondering just exactly how they are to operate as husbands. And we hear about men who are just generally confused today. They don't know what it means to be a man. They're not sure what it means to be a woman. So somebody emailed me a list of rules for the men so that they can um, get a greater grasp of what is expected of you today. Rule number one is the female always makes the rules. Rule number two is the rules are subject to change at any time without prior notification. Rule number three is no male can possibly know all the rules. Rule number four is if the female suspects the male knows all the rules, she must immediately change some or all of the rules. Rule number five is the female is never wrong. And rule number six is if the female is wrong, sort of inherent contradiction, it is because of a flagrant misunderstanding which was a direct result of something the male did or said wrong. Uh, rule number seven, the female can change her mind at any given point in time. And rule number eight, the male must never change his mind without express written consent from the female. Rule number nine, the female has every right to be angry or upset at any time. And rule number ten, the male must remain calm at all times unless the female wants him to be angry or upset. And then rule number 11, the female, thank you, Ken, it's getting a little warm in here. The female must under no circumstances let the male know whether or not she wants him to be angry or upset. And then 12, any attempt to document these rules could result in bodily harm. So just a little something to see if everybody's awake this morning before we get into the absolutes of God's word. As I stated at the beginning, this morning we're going to begin to look at some of the issues related to a subject that is sensitive for some, not quite so sensitive for others, one that has generated tremendous controversy down through the history of Christianity, and that is the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, we are not going to give an exhaustive doctrine of this, uh, our exhaustive account of this doctrine this morning. I'm going to wait until we get towards the end of the chapter before we come back and, and outline all the general principles involved, but we're going to uh, 
look at some key issues here as Paul expresses them in uh, verses 10 through 16. Verses 10 through 16, and we have to remember the context. This is so important when we get into, I think, any of the passages that relate to the subject of marriage and divorce, because one of the problems is, as Paul states certain general principles, he is stating them in light of the questions that are being asked and the context of the, of the situation, especially here in Corinth. Remember, the key issue here was celibacy. It's important to remember that the issue was they were distorting the doc, uh, distorting the idea of celibacy, applying it to marriage, and saying that it was uh, more spiritual to be celibate than to not be celibate. And they were casting aspersions on the concept of intimacy and sex and marriage. And Paul addressed that clearly in the first seven seven verses. In verse 8, he begins to address three different groups of people in relationship to this. Now, once we understand that the background is celibacy, and you have to come to another understanding here, and that is that Paul has made it clear, he's going to remind them in First Corinthians, excuse me, in Second Corinthians 9, that it is not God's plan, God's ideal for unbelievers to be married, or excuse me, for believers to be married to unbelievers. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? How can a believer be bound to an unbeliever? Now, the question would naturally arise in light of some things that Paul has already said about believers not being associated with the immoral of this world. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, he will make the statement that uh, bad company corrupts good morals. It would lead many in the congregation to the logical conclusion that uh, if I'm married to an unbeliever, then it is somehow defiling for me to have uh, sexual relations with my unbelieving spouse. It is perhaps even defiling to my spiritual life to be married to an unbeliever. And so that's one of the reasons Paul addresses uh, the unbeliever in this section as well. So there's going to be three three basic sections here. Let me give you an overview, and then we'll get into some of the details. In verse 8, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows. And there he class, he addresses one particular group, those who are unmarried. And by unmarried, he uses the Greek word agamos. And this Greek word is just a general term. It begins with the alpha, A, which is like a UN in English, negative, and then gamos, G-A-M-O-S, and unmarried refers to those who have never been married and those who are divorced. And we know that from verse 11, where he says, but even addressing the the believing wife, that even if she does depart, and the word there for depart is the Greek word which means divorce, even if she does uh, div- is divorced, let her remain unmarried. And there's that same word again that we find, agamas, and so it indicates that this word means refers to both those who are single, never been married, those who um, are divorced. So verse 8 is addressed to the single and divorced. And there he lays down this principle and uh, that it's good for them to remain as I am. And this is a 
crucial principle to understand throughout this entire section that Paul thinks it's better to remain in the state you're in. And ultimately, if you're single, it's better to stay single because you can give more time to serving the Lord. Not because it is an inherently more spiritual position, but simply because it can, the single person has fewer responsibilities. Now, he's not contradicting the divine institution of marriage or the Christian institution of marriage, and it's wrong to put an, an inordinate emphasis on what he is saying there. But we must understand in this context that a general uh, overriding principle here is Paul keeps saying, stay in the condition you're in. But that doesn't mean that it is wrong, immoral, or a sin to change that condition. He is simply emphasizing that 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 it's best to stay where you are. This is runs into a problem with so many believers because we want things to all, every situation to be cut and dried. It's either right to do this or it's wrong to do this. And many people are just uncomfortable with the fact that well, it's a matter of your own decision as to what, between you and the Lord as to what you think is best and how you can best serve the Lord. So it's not a matter of an absolute right or an absolute wrong in certain situations. But then he will qualify some of these general statements with exceptions as we go through the text. So it's important to recognize that Paul's approach is to state a general principle. And then he comes in and he relates certain exceptions to that principle and applies it in different situations. One of the things that's happened in the course of the discussion on divorce and remarriage is you'll find people go into one particular verse and they'll take that verse and they'll take that general principle and absolutize it and make that apply to each and every situation and then uh, then they have to then they have to fudge on the interpretation on the exception passages well he really doesn't mean what it seems like he's saying in terms of that exception. So verse 8 is addressed to the single and the widows. Verse 10, he addresses married believers, where both the husband and the wife are believers. And that's in verse 10 and verse 11. And then in verse 12, he addresses the rest. And the rest, by the rest, we see from the context in 12 and 13 that the rest applies to those believers who are married to unbelievers. And that is the context of verse 12 down through verse uh, 16. Verse 12 down through 16. So the primary theme in these verses, as in every verse that relates to the subject of marriage and the subject of divorce, is that the divine standard, the divine ideal for marriage, is one partner for life. However, that standard, which is established in creation, this is what Jesus does in in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. We'll look at that passage eventually. But when the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him uh, about the the conditions for uh, divorce and remarriage, he goes back to the original creation. He goes back to Adam and Eve, and he states what the standard is prior to sin. And then we recognize after that that because of hardness of heart, which Jesus mentions in Matthew 19, and that relates to the stubbornness of man's sin nature, God establishes certain exceptions that are instantiated in the Mosaic Law. So we have to recognize certain principles from that at the very beginning. 
And we have four principles I want to emphasize. The first one is that God does not regulate sin. God prohibits sin, forbids sin, but God doesn't regulate sin. So if um, one of the problems that we have when we talk about marriage is some people get the idea that in marriage, when a man and a woman marry, that this creates some sort of indissoluble, unbreakable, ontological, by that I mean almost a metaphysical union, that no matter what happens, it can never be broken. Now that presents a number of problems because Scripture clearly recognizes the fact that, um, like in, in Deuteronomy chapter Chapter four: That uh, if a if a man divorces his wife and she marries another one, that she is now the wife of that second husband. Well, if if there is this sort of unbreakable, indissoluble, ontological union that occurs, then she can't be the, ever legitimately be the wife called the wife of somebody else. Same thing we see in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and recognizes that she's had eight husbands. Now the chances are, doesn't state that, that they all died, but, but the chances are that unless, uh, unless this woman is a real candidate for a Columbo mystery on television, that those eight men did not die, that they were divorced, and he re- clearly recognizes in his discussion with her that she is not now the husband of anyone. So he recognizes the legitimacy of those divorces and that they ended the marriage. Now that's important because there are many people who think that there is no provision in the Scriptures at all for either divorce or remarriage, and yet you have at least those two examples that recognize that 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 the Lord himself recognizes the reality of the ending of a marriage. But God doesn't regulate sin, therefore that means that there is validity to divorce and remarriage under some conditions. And those modifications have been made because of the reality of sinfulness. See, God is a realist, and he understands the problems that have entered into human history because of the sin nature. And so God deals with man in grace, and grace is an overriding principle that must be understood in talking about this subject. The second principle is that because of the present reality of sin, the exceptions must not be taken as creating a permissive situation where marriage is viewed as somehow disposable. Because of the present reality of sin and because of the fact that Scripture clearly recognizes that people are going to have problems in marriages and marriages are going to break up, that this must never be taken as creating any kind of permissive situation where marriage is viewed as somehow disposable. In fact, the standard in Scripture is even though there may be exceptions, those exceptions don't mandate divorce. Those exceptions simply allow for it in certain circumstances. But for the believer, the standard is always to do as much as possible to work out the problems in the marriage, applying the principle of reconciliation. And the subtext throughout all of these passages is, if the believer can't apply the principle of reconciliation in his own principle, in his own personal life, how can he be an effective witness or testimony to the doctrine of reconciliation in witnessing? So we have to recognize that that um, 
just because there are problems does, and just because there are exceptions doesn't mean that you necessarily have to follow those exceptions. In fact, I know of a number of situations where there have been horrendous situations and biblically and situations that would biblically allow for a divorce where couples have applied the problem-solving devices and worked through the problems and have restored their marriages based on God's Word, and that provides a tremendous testimony to the sufficiency of God's grace. That if they had just said, oh, well, you know, life is tough, and my husband uh, had an affair, and my wife had an affair, and now I'm just going to get a divorce, and we're going to start all over, that, that if they had taken that attitude, they would have completely missed out on the tremendous opportunity to glorify God in the restoration of their marriage. Now, does that mean it was easy? No. Does that mean it wasn't painful? No. Does that mean it didn't take years? Sure, it took years. But they had their understanding of a personal sense of destiny and what the long-term consequences would be. And by keeping that in mind, they were able to go through some very difficult times in order to recover from some terrible mistakes and some terrible sins. So just because there is sin and just because there is an allowance for divorce under certain circumstances doesn't mean that that option should be taken necessarily. Third principle is that the tone of all the divorce passages in Scripture is not to focus on the exception idea, but on the importance of the believer applying doctrine to the situation and seeking reconciliation and peace in the marriage, even though this may take years or decades. The tone is not to focus on the exception idea. See, what we tend to do is, how can I get out of it? See, that's a, the, the marriage testing is one area of testing, of people testing, that is extremely difficult. And when people are going through that, it is very typical, as with all categories of testing, is to have uppermost in the mind, how can I get out of this situation? And we will address some of the problems with that uh, as we go along. And then the fourth principle involves two subpoints. The fourth principle is the two extremes must be avoided. Two extremes must be avoided. The first extreme is one that I would suggest that every one of us have felt at one time or another because I don't think there's anyone here who either hasn't personally gone through a divorce or personally been involved in one in their immediate family. And we all know what it is to experience the pressure of someone coming to us and they're going through some extremely painful and miserable circumstances in their marriage. And we have all felt that pressure because what somebody wants is for us to validate their agenda to get out from under the pressure. And it is very, I think it's very typical of people who want to help and people who are sensitive to the problems that others are going through is to uh, somehow come up with a justification or rationalization to end the marriage. And one often hears the rationalization that in one form or another, God would not want me to be this miserable. Why would God want me to stay in this miserable marriage living with this uh, horrible husband or this uh, terrible wife? And what that person has done is to buy into a completely false premise. Let me try to isolate that premise for you. 
when we say anything like, why would God want me to stay in this miserable circumstance? Whatever it is, maybe it's a job circumstance, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's, it's a financial circumstance, maybe it's a health circumstance. But how many times do we get involved in some form of testing, some form of adversity that is going to go on and on and on for years, if not decades, and one, the, the real test is to trust God in the midst of those horrible circumstances, not to figure out some way to get rid of the horrible circumstances. And so what we, what we say when we say that, well, God wouldn't want me to be in a miserable marriage. God would want me to be happy. Well, what we're really saying is that, that God wouldn't want us to ever go through adversity, and that just runs contrary to Scripture. God often either allows or specifically puts us in miserable circumstances, and miserable circumstances that may last a lifetime in order for us to learn that real happiness and stability in life is not dependent on those circumstances. Real happiness and real stability in life is not dependent on your spouse. It's not dependent on your children. It's not dependent on your job. It's not dependent on your finances. It's not dependent on any detail of life, no matter what it may be. It's not dependent on your social life. It's not dependent on your uh, health. It's not dependent on your weight. It's not dependent on your looks. It's not dependent on anything that we tend to look to for happiness and meaning and stability in life. And But when it gets really tough is when we're locked into some sort of extremely difficult situation in marriage. And over the years, I've seen some uh, some incredibly miserable circumstances. I've seen some that have been miserable for years. Frequently, they're of our own making. Sometimes uh, there are situations where you truly do have one person who just goes carnal and they just go off the deep end and um, and they create a terrible circumstance in a marriage uh, other times we realize that people as they advance and grow through through life go through different stages sometimes when they're in their 20s or 30s they're they're still maturing and you look at some situations and all of a sudden you realize, you know, if they had just endured or stuck it out, not given up so quickly, something positive could have come out of that. It might have taken five or ten years, but it could, they could have matured through it. What happens is we get a lot of misconceptions and unrealistic expectations when it comes to marriage. Some people get the idea that if God has a specific person for me, that when I marry them, that everything is going to be wonderful. The problem is that that person that God has for you is a lousy, rotten sinner whose heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, the Scripture says. And when that person operates on carnality, you're going to go through some rocky times. And when you go on in carnality, and if you get into extended carnality, you're going to take them through some rocky times. And so that's why the principle of grace and impersonal love comes into play. And we have to recognize that just because we're miserable, just because we're in painful circumstances, just because the husband or the wife isn't doing what you think or would like for them to do, does not necessarily mean the solution is the dissolution or the dissolution of the marriage.
often it is an opportunity, a tremendous opportunity, to grow through that circumstance by applying problem-solving devices and demonstrating the sufficiency of the grace of God. Now, that's one extreme, is to yield to the pressure and to just find some reason, some excuse, some way to validate getting out of the marriage to alleviate the problems. This is one of the reasons why you have such a high divorce rate among people in second and third marriages. See, the problem never got solved. All they did was they, they, they looked on the other side of the fence and thought the grass was greener, and so they jumped the fence. But the grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but it still needs to be cut. And you still end up getting into a second marriage and having the same problems in relationship dynamics, having to apply the same principles of impersonal love and grace orientation. And if you as an individual have not matured to the point where you can apply those principles, then you're going to have the same problems all over again. So we have to avoid that one pressure, which is to make it too easy, make it come up with reasons or justifications uh, to allow for divorce. On the other hand, we have to avoid the pressure to, or yielding to the pressure of legalism and idealism without accepting the present reality of sin that there are situations where one partner yields to carnality to such a degree that it is no longer feasible for one partner to stay in that marriage. A lot of different conditions that are not addressed in Scripture are present today. Uh, Not only do you have the problems that are mentioned in Scripture, such as sexual infidelity, but you have other problems that aren't specifically mentioned in Scripture, such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, financial abuse where you have uh, one spouse or the other abusing credit cards and credit card debt and putting the other spouse in an extremely vulnerable financial position that may affect the rest of their life. Uh, I hesitate to use the word verbal and emotional abuse because that's terminology that has really generated out of a, a psychologized culture. And it's very subjective. One person's emotional abuse is just another person's uh, lively personality. And if you are the kind of person that is very mild and even-tempered and never raise your voice, and you happen to marry somebody who's got a rather lively, outspoken, verbal personality, and and, uh, when you get mad, you just kind of stuff your anger away somewhere, never talk about it, and keep it very calm and quiet. And you marry somebody who, when they get mad, they immediately sort of explode, put, put their fist through the wall, forget about it, and move on. Then when you see that guy do that, you're going to interpret that as something that is incredibly terrible. You're going to see that as somebody who's just completely out of control and extremely abusive. But you put two people who have a lively uh, temperament together in the same house, and they're going to understand each other. They're not going to see that as abusive or anything else, anything on, on that nature. So sometimes this is extremely subjective, and, and so I hesitate to even go into that category. The Bible doesn't address it, but I, I do recognize that there are situations where a, a husband or a wife uh, really beats down, yells at, screams at the other one over and over again, is never kind to them, constantly makes them miserable or unhappy, someone who is consistently argumentative, 
and someone who never applies grace orientation to the situation. Now, many of these situations do not necessitate a divorce. In fact, none of them make a divorce necessary. But as we shall see, there is scriptural allowance for the fact that divorce can take place under some of these circumstances. And while it may not be sin to divorce... Uh, it may not allow for remarriage. See, that's the thing that always comes along in our society is we think that divorce automatically includes the right to remarry. But the Scripture does not uh, address that. So with those principles in mind, let's see what Paul says starting in verse 10. We have to recognize that some marriages are... are um, are wonderful and happy most of the time, but but there are disagreements that come into play in almost any relationship. There are difficulties that occur. There are disagreements just because you have two uh, different individuals with two different sin natures. And in the process of creating a Christian testimony, as the two members in a Christian marriage grow and advance together, then as they as they mature spiritually, these will become less and less. So obviously you can't expect uh, that level of enjoyment among 20-year-olds because, A, they haven't matured enough emotionally, and, B, they haven't matured enough spiritually. And that's all part of the process is, is going through those those disagreements and working through those and applying problem-solving devices, and that's how they grow and mature together. The problem is when we don't apply principles like forgiveness and kindness and grace orientation, then those problems that occur early in marriage then fester and become uh, major sources of irritation years down the road. Well, in verse 10, Paul addresses the married believers. The husband and wife are both believers. And he says in verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Actually, it's to the married I give a commandment. This is only the second time in here that he specifically states I am giving it a commandment. It says, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That the wife should not leave her husband. And the word that is translated here for not leave is the Greek word korizo. It's the Greek word koridzo, and this is in the aorist passive infinitive. Looks like this: C H O R I Z O. Now I said it's an aorist passive. It's in the infinitival form, and many people want to emphasize something about the passive voice here which is where the subject is acted upon and would look at this passage and try to translate that a wife is not to be uh, divorced uh, from her husband as if she is not the initiator. However, in Greek grammar, there are a number of verbs that when they occur in the passive infinitive, and karizo is one of them, when they occur in the passive infinitive, it has more of a reflexive uh, connotation and is equivalent to a middle voice verb. So it doesn't say anything. The passive voice does not say anything about who initiates the divorce in this circumstance. Now, there are three different words in this passage 
beginning in verse 10, that are used in Greco-Roman culture for divorce, and Corizo is the first of these. So this should be translated, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the, but the Lord, that the wife should not divorce her husband. She is, uh, or, or to be divorced from her husband. Either idea would be present there, that, but the fact that he's addressing the wife would indicate that she is not to initiate leaving. She is not to leave her husband. But even if she does, verse 11, even if she does, so by introducing the conditional clause here, Paul recognizes that there are legitimate reasons for her leaving. But if she does leave, and that is the uh, the same word used again, carizo, and should be translated not just departure, but if she does divorce him, or he divorces her. If she divorces him, let her remain unmarried. Now, Paul is writing, as we're going to recognize, he in verse 12 when he says, uh, to the rest I say, not the Lord, he recognizes clearly that he is addressing a situation in verses 10 and 11 that the Lord dressed in Matthew 5 and 19, chapter 5 and Matthew 19, where the Lord recognized that there was a clear exception, exception, and that is in the realm of immorality. So that must be understood as a background for this. He's not stating an, a universal principle here that she, that if the wife leaves, that she is to stay unmarried. He recognizes that um, in the background he's thinking that, of course, uh, there is a legitimate reason to be divorced if there is immorality, and that would not apply. But this has to do with other areas, that if she leaves for other reasons other than those that are legitimate, then she has two options, and that is to remain unmarried or to be reconciled to her husband. There's no wiggle room there. Uh, and, see, that's what happens so often is that people think, well, I'm just going to end this marriage, and then I'll find uh, somebody else. But Paul does not leave that option open unless, of course, you have the legitimacy from the exception clause over in Matthew. So the options... If the woman leaves, are that she is to remain unmarried, are to be reconciled. Now, one of the things that we have to recognize in um, in this whole subject that we'll get to eventually in a little more detail is that um, it doesn't really matter here who initiates. See, sometimes we get into this, um, get into a certain amount of wrangling over who filed the divorce. See, we have to recognize that in Roman Greco-Roman culture, they the reason we use a word like a word like carizo is used for leaving is because in divorce it, there was not always a legal document of divorce. Frequently the husband would just say get out and she would leave and that ended the marriage. And as far as anyone was concerned the marriage was over with and they were divorced and and in that culture she's free to uh, free to remarry. She's no longer married to the one who kicked her out. So Paul is simply addressing the fact he's not addressing who initiates or who doesn't initiate. We get all wrapped around the axle sometimes as to who initiates a divorce. And what's interesting is you'll find some people who they just don't want to take responsibility for uh, overt responsibility for ending the marriage, so they get involved in a lot of psychological games 
and make the situation so miserable for the other person that basically they run them out of the house, and then the other person ends up being the one who files for divorce, and then she can say, see, it's not my fault, it's his fault or her fault, because she's the one who filed for divorce. So we get into a lot of subtle things like that, but what Paul is saying here is unless at the core there are the legitimate exceptions recognized in Scripture, there is not to be a remarriage. There, there may be legitimacy for divorce, but not for, re, not for remarriage. Then we get into verse 12. Um, oh, excuse me. Let me back up. The second part of verse 11 and that the husband should not send his wife away. And here we get into the second word that's used in this passage for divorce, and that is the word afiemi. It is, the word afiemi is the same word that is translated forgiveness in other passages. And it has the idea of, uh, in this context, of forgiving a contractual obligation. And marriage is a contractual obligation. So it came to be a word that was used for divorce. So he says the wife should not divorce her husband or leave her husband, and the, wi- and the husband should not send his wife away. And the principle in verse 11, uh, uh, 10 and 11 for believing, two believers who are married is that unless... There is an exception. I think the two exceptions are some sort of sexual infidelity and uh, desertion. And we'll get into that before we finish the passage this morning. That otherwise, there is no wiggle room for remarriage. And the idea is that these, all of these other problems can be solved through the use of the problem-solving devices and can be solved through the application of doctrine, and God's grace is sufficient. Now, in verse 12, Paul changes the subject, and now he's going to address the unbeliever. Remember, the background for this is he's made several statements about the fact that that believers shouldn't be joined, shouldn't be bound with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 9. Of course, that hasn't been written yet, but he's probably taught the principle. He's clearly taught the principle in 1 Corinthians 6 that they weren't to... um, uh, be involved with those who were uh, immoral, that is, the unbelievers, that uh, with those who are immoral, they should be careful who they associate with. He'll say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so it would be easy for, for these Corinthians to rationalize this and say, well, I married an unbeliever, so that ought to give me grounds to divorce them. But Paul does not allow that. He doesn't give any wiggle room there. Remember, Marriage is a divine institution. Now, this is one of the things that I've always had a little trouble with in, in, with in discussing this with some people, is you'll find, uh, I remember one time in seminary uh, talking with uh, somebody, and they said, well, you know, that divorce really doesn't count because that was before they were saved. Well, see, if, if marriage is a divine institution and for believer and unbeliever alike, then the basic rules for marriage and divorce are for unbeliever and believer alike. And it doesn't matter if you got divorced before you were saved or if you got divorced after you were saved because the the principles that Paul's going to outline here are, are the same for believer and unbeliever, whether you've got two believers, two unbelievers, or a believer and an unbeliever involved in marriage. Now, when you come to Christian marriage where you've got two believers, there's clearly a higher standard. But when you have... Um, uh, un- 
the marriage of a believer and an unbeliever and the marriage of two unbelievers, you have a different set of standards, but it doesn't nullify the marriage or make it any less of a binding contract. So in verse 12, Paul says, To the rest I say not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And here we have the same word that we just saw in verse 11, Afiemi, let her, let him not divorce her. So now he addresses the believer, the man who is a believer, and he is married to a wife that is not a believer. And what Paul says is he is not to initiate divorce, at least for the reason that she's an unbeliever. Just because now you find that, that oops, I made a mistake, I was in carnality and I married this unbeliever, or I, uh, we were both unbelievers and now I'm saved and, and uh, my wife's not a believer. Whatever the circumstance may be, you're still married. And there has been a contractual relationship established and Marriage is still a foundation for the integrity of a of a national entity, and it's still a divine institution. And so the principle applies that if that unbeliever does not want to leave the marriage, then they're the only one who can take the initiative to end the marriage. If they want to end it because you're now a believer, and I know of one situation where a nationally known um, uh, biblical author and speaker was was married, uh, and back in the days when he was a tugboat captain on the Mississippi, and his wife, I understand, was really something. She was also a tugboat captain. And uh, uh, when he got saved, she kicked him out and said, that's the end of that. I'm not going to be married to some stinking Christian. I don't think she said it quite that politely. But that can happen, that just because you're, you're married to somebody and you become a believer, that unbeliever may consider that grounds for ending the marriage. So that can happen. But the, what Paul says here is that the believer is not to initiate a divorce on the basis of the spiritual status of the partner. If the unbelieving wife consents to stay, then you are not to divorce her for that reason. It may be difficult. It may be a marriage where you don't have a lot in common. There may be a lot of things that you can't discuss with your spouse and that she may never understand about you. But the principle is still the same, that that marriage is to be maintained. Then in verse 13, we have the reverse. A woman, that is a believing wife, a believer wife, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Let her not divorce him. So the principle in verses 12 and 13 is that if it's a mixed marriage, believer and unbeliever, that the spiritual status of the unbelieving spouse is not to be a basis for the believer to initiate a divorce. And then Paul is going to explain why this is so in verses 14 through 15. And this is important to understand because of the background. Remember I stated that, that, that it would be real easy for the, for the uh, Corinthians to say, well, Paul, in light of what you said about not associating with immoral people, not associating with unbelievers, not being bound with unbelievers, it would be real easy to rationalize uh, divorce because somehow I am being defiled by this relationship with an unbeliever. And in verse 14, Paul says, 
spore with the uh, explanatory gar in the Greek that always gives an explanation for a previous statement. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What in the world does this mean? Well, to make it simple, this is simply an example of blessing by association. Paul is not saying that somehow the unbelieving husband is positionally sanctified by the fact that he's married. He's not saved by virtue of his marriage. He's not being uh, sanctified or growing spiritually uh, by virtue of being married to a believing wife. But because she is a believer and God is going to be blessing her, the unbelieving husband is going to be blessed by association. So if you're married to a spouse who is not a believer, that spouse is going to benefit and is going to be blessed by association with you. So it's just the opposite of their rationalization that, oh, now I'm going to be defiled. I better get rid of that spouse. Paul says, no, just the contrary. Your spouse is going to be benefited and blessed by association with you. And the same thing is going to be true of any children that are uh, not believers. By virtue of the fact that you are a parent, as a believer, your children will also be blessed by association. There are many examples in Scripture of believers who are in a household that is comprised of unbelievers, and yet that household is also blessed. For example, we have Jacob living in Laban's household in Genesis chapter 30, verse 27, and Joseph living in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39.5. Those are just a few of the examples of blessing by association. Now we get an exception in verse 15. What happens if the unbelieving spouse leaves? And here we have the word for divorce again, karidzo. If the unbeliever leaves, if the unbeliever uh Divorces. If they initiate divorce here, let him leave. The brother or sister, that is the believing husband or the believing wife, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, we have to understand a couple of things here in light of this context. What does it mean to be not under bondage in such cases? That means that the believer is not bound by the marriage contract in these circumstances. If the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce, then the believer is no longer bound by that marriage, and this allows them then the freedom to remarry. As Paul will say later on when he's addressing widows, it should be now to a believer. But in this circumstance, if the unbeliever or the uh, the unbeliever initiates that divorce and leaves, and uh, the the believer then that uh, allows them they're no longer under bondage. Now this same principle is extrapolated to apply also to believer-believer relationships. This has been the historical doctrine of the Protestant Church since. Uh, since the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church takes a no divorce, no remarriage position, but that is one that uh, uh, was pretty much a, a unified position throughout the Middle Ages, but it's rooted and grounded in a lot of Platonic thought and screwed up views on marriage and, and the body and sex and various other things that came to influence their theology. 
But since the Protestant Reformation, this verse has been taken to recognize that because you're dealing with the uh, institution of marriage, and if marriage itself is not indissoluble, it's not creating some sort of ontological unity that can't be broken, that when the believer operates like an unbeliever and leaves, divorces, deserts the spouse, then that also allows for remarriage on the part of the uh, one who is left, the innocent party, that they are not under bondage in such cases. It's a case of, of, um, of application that if this is true for an unbeliever, if it's true in the case of marriage at all, it is true for both believer and unbeliever. And then the principle is stated, but God has called us to peace. And that is that God has called the believer to live in peace and not in um, a state of constant bickering and fighting. And therefore, uh, when it is not the believer to go and constantly try to get the other, uh, the, the unbelieving spouse to come back and put them into some kind of enslavement in the relationship. So this allows for the case of desertion that if one one leaves, uh, if the unbeliever leaves and, absol- and gives up all responsibility and accountability in the marriage, then uh, the believer is not bound in those cases. Now, this brings up just by, just a sort of a, a side note here that we have to recognize is the scripture clearly recognizes that when it's a believer-believer relationship, that if the person who leaves, who initiates, leaves, this is back at verses 10 and 11, they are not to remarry. Their job is to, is to either stay single or to, uh, be reconciled. But the innocent party is free to remarry. But that doesn't mean that they should or that they ought to or that that's a wise course of action. Now, I want to bring in another area here because there are clearly circumstances where separation is necessary. And I think the Scripture recognizes in scriptural terms a difference between separation and divorce. Whereas when we get into modern American jurisprudence, even in the U.S., those the laws vary from state to state. In some states where you have, you do not have legal separation. You have community property states. Now, Connecticut is not a community property state, but there are states who are community property states and don't have a, a legal, um, separation. Therefore, in those states, in order to be, for, for the, either one to be protected financially, there has to be a legal divorce. That's the only way to separate the property, separate the financial obligations, separate the debt obligations in order to protect them in various legal matters. So when we talk about the term separation or divorce, the Bible is not making the kinds of legal distinctions that we make in, in our modern American jurisprudence. And uh, basically what we see is in a number of circumstances where there's not uh, either, where you're not the innocent party, where there hasn't been sexual immorality or there hasn't been desertion, then there is no basis for remarriage. Now, some may say, well, just be separated because you know, you've got an abusive husband or abusive wife, just uh, just be separated. But if you're in a state where you're not protected financially, 
then what you have to do legally is divorce. But that even though in, in American law that allows you the freedom to remarry, biblically to a believer who has not ended the marriage for the right reasons, that does not bring the freedom to remarry. Now we come to verse 16. Now I can't think of anything that probably maybe that, that perhaps is more more can be more of a test than for someone who is living with an unbeliever, especially an unbeliever who won't end the marriage but is hostile to their spiritual life and hostile to their positive volition to doctrine. And this can really challenge, I think, especially a wife. And Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. So before we get to verse 16, turn with me over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Peter 3 addresses the issue of a wife living with either an unbeliever unbelieving husband or a, a husband who is in carnality and acting like an unbeliever. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, see, either that can be taken as either unbeliever or carnality. Even if some do not obey the word, that without a word, that is, without nagging them, without badgering them, without uh, pointing out all their flaws to them, telling them they're carnal, telling them you know many other things that probably come out of your mouth, um, uh, you keep quiet, that they may be won by your conduct, by simply nonverbal conduct. Now, that's not an easy thing to apply. That's a very difficult thing to apply in many circumstances, and, it's, and it may take years before that produces any level of fruit. But I don't see Peter giving any, a lot of wiggle room there that if your husband's carnal or not a believer, that, uh, well, that gives you an opportunity and an excuse to end the marriage. That you may, be, that you may win them by, the, by their conduct when they observe, verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, that is, respect for them. And what's difficult for a lot of women is they look at this husband who has destroyed every uh, basis for their respect for him. They say, well, how can I respect him? He's not fulfilling his leadership role. He's not fulfilling his responsibilities as a Christian husband or a Christian father. How can I respect him? And the principle here is one that is so difficult for Americans to understand, especially if you're, you've been born since 1950. And that is respect for the office even though the individual that possesses the office is not worthy of respect. That is why even though there may be a man in a political office as a representative or senator or governor or president, that in light of his personal life, in light of his decisions, may not be personally worthy of respect because that person is the governor, because that person is the president, because that person is your boss, because that person is your commanding officer, you demonstrate respect for the office and position they hold, even though personally they may not be worthy of that respect. 
This is why even though you have many military members that may have no respect and may completely despise a particular president, he is still their commander-in-chief, and therefore they give him all respect and deference and salute him and call him sir and follow his orders, even though he personally may be extremely reprehensible, you still respect his position and his authority, and that is that is being professional in that circumstance. It doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean you like it and you enjoy it, but that is the correct biblical response. So verse 3, and 1 Peter 3 goes on to address the external uh, comportment of the woman, verse 4 says, let it, it puts the emphasis on the hidden person of the soul, where the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So it emphasizes humility and grace orientation and forgiveness on the part of the spouse, on the part of the wife in this difficult circumstance. For in this manner, we get an illustration from the Old Testament, Verse 5, for in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That would be comparable to calling him Sir, just respecting his position, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, that's a tough thing for women. Husbands don't get off lightly. I'm going to go ahead and address you in verse 7 just so you don't feel like you've got some easy road. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding. That is, on the basis of understanding doctrine and grace orientation based on Ephesians 6, or Ephesians 5, loving your wife as Christ loved the church, giving honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted and courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So verses 8 and 9 address the overall principles that should characterize the relationships in any marriage, compassion, grace orientation, love, forgiveness, impersonal love, uh, forgiveness, uh, generosity, kindness, uh, not vindictiveness, not uh, revenge, not uh, bitterness, not giving in to mental attitude sins or harboring uh, these things. So that brings us a conclusion, and that is to look at the doctrine of marriage failure, and I will just summarize some of the things that we've covered already. First of all, we have to recognize under point number one that marriage is a divine institution for unbeliever and believer alike. Therefore, the general principles apply for, uh, of marriage and divorce apply despite your spiritual status. The rules for marriage are the same because marriage is a divine institution for believer and unbeliever alike. Point number two, in the New Testament, marriage for believers takes on an additional and higher significance because in marriage, the believer has an opportunity to be a corporate testimony in their marriage in the angelic conflict. 
there was a failure of the marriage in the Garden of Eden, and as two believers grow and advance in maturity, they have the opportunity to reverse the negative testimony of marriage in the Garden and to present something of a positive, as a positive testimony to the grace of God in the angelic conflict. Point number three, however... We need to recognize that it takes two to make a marriage successful and one to make a marriage miserable. It takes two to make a marriage successful and it takes one to make a marriage miserable. Four, one of three things can happen when a marriage becomes difficult. First, you decide to stick with it and endure the situation. Now that doesn't mean that if you are being physically abused or there is drug abuse, or you are in danger of being defrauded financially, that you should stay in that situation. You need to operate on the principle of, uh, of self-defense sometimes and get out of that particular situation, but that does not necessarily carry with it the, the freedom of remarriage. It may or it may not, depending on the circumstances. You, if you can, stay in the marriage and operate on the principle of blessing by association, hoping that you can have an impact on that person for Christ. That's the principle that we find in 1 Corinthians 7.16. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? You know, as a believer, stay in the marriage with an unbelieving spouse because there is the possibility that they might uh, might be saved. So don't just use that as an excuse to get out. So the first option when marriage is difficult is to endure it. The second option is separation, and separation without remarriage. And the third option is under the two circumstances of either a sexual infidelity or the fact that the other person has, uh, has left and deserted the marriage and has, uh, is not going to take any more responsibility or accountability for the marriage, that that also ends the marriage contract and you're not bound only under those two circumstances is there freedom to remarry. Point number five, in a mixed marriage, the unbeliever only can make the, only the unbeliever can make the decision and take the initiative in divorce. Now once again I want to come back and remind you of the divorce gimmick. There are people who are in circumstances where it looks like they initiated the divorce, but what happened is the other person just kept badgering them and pushing them and making life as miserable as they could because they didn't have the uh, courage and conviction to make the decision on their own, and so they forced the other person to do it. That does not mean that that person initiated the divorce. In many cases, that I've seen cases where they have done everything they can to keep it together, but the other person just pushes and pushes and pushes and manipulates them, and that is what we'll call the divorce gimmick is where the guilty party manipulates the innocent party into taking the initiative so that uh, technically they, they don't look like they're the guilty party. Point number six, only biblical divorce protect, provides the right to remarry. Point number seven, divorce and remarriage were clearly permitted under the Mosaic Law. Uh, the only exception being in Deuteronomy 24, 3 and 4 is that the wife, once divorced and remarried to somebody else, could not come back and remarry the first husband. Point number eight, in the Old Testament, the man always initiated the divorce, 
But nevertheless, even in our culture, the principle works both ways because both women and men can initiate a divorce. Point number nine, in John 4, Jesus recognized that the woman of the well who had had various marriages was no longer married to any of them. That emphasizes the legitimacy or the reality of divorce that ends a previous marriage. Point number 10, uh, divorce and remarriage is allowed for porneia in Matthew 5:32 and 19:9, which is an act of sexual infidelity, desertion in 1 Corinthians 7:15, and the divorce gimmick where even though you are the innocent party, you've been forced or manipulated into initiating the divorce. And finally, point number 11, if you remarry a divorced person who was not biblically or legitimately divorced on biblical grounds, or either of you or both of you do not have a biblical cause for the previous divorce, then the law of the status quo comes into play. That means stay in the marriage you're in, even though you may not have ended the first marriage in a biblical manner. Maybe you should not legitimately be remarried. This is where confession and forgiveness comes in. This is where grace comes. No, no matter what the reason was in the past, you may have blown it, you may have committed a sin, but the problem is in modern evangelicalism, they've promoted divorce to this unforgivable sin that's bigger and greater than anything else in life, and if you do that, well, that just destroys your whole effectiveness in the Christian life, and you can't do anything else because uh, you've committed this one particular sin. And that's just pure legalism and hogwash and doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. The Bible clearly recognizes that there are no sins that are unforgivable. And whatever the past circumstances might have been, if you were wrong, then you just confess it as any other sin and move on. God forgives it and the slate is wiped clean. The issue is behind you and you can move forward. That's what grace is all about. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the fact that we live in, uh, we are the beneficiaries of your grace. That grace means that you deal with us uh, on the basis not of who and what we are, but on the basis of who you are. That you recognize the realities of our fallen nature, the hardness of our heart, and that even though uh, we frequently fall short of your standard and your ideal, you constantly uh, forgive us. You constantly are in the process of, of working with fallen creatures who uh, continuously fail. Father, we pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, they would recognize that there are certain standards and that we've all fallen short of those standards. And the penalty for sin is eternal condemnation. But the solution, the divine solution, is a grace solution that's not based on works, not based on morality, not based on good deeds, church attendance, ritual, observance, or any other human factor. But it's based exclusively on what you have provided through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. There he paid the penalty for each and every sin that we will ever commit. And so if you have never put your faith alone in Christ alone, this is your opportunity to do that to realize that you have to make a decision about your eternal destiny, and that decision is related to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All you have to do is accept that free gift as yours, to put your faith alone in Christ alone, and you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.